0: Oh, how quickly the time has gone. It seemed like uh, just uh, Wednesday that we started. (laughs) So we laid out quite a few principles and defined quite a number of terms. And last night was when I presented the overarch concept that frames all of what we what i have been saying so i want to move on to certain applications now of these principles and uh, i would like to pick up from where i left off last na- last time which was i was speaking about the three things that paul said he was writing to the Ephesians uh, to convey. Number one, the hope of his calling. Number two, God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And number three, the working of his mighty power on behalf of those who believe, and that's where I want to pick up. Let me just briefly recap the two uh, previous uh, references, the hope of His calling and His glorious inheritance in the saints. Turning to, to the scriptures. So in uh, Ephesians 1 18, mm-hmm. Paul says that, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, he's praying that, that the, the Father would give to the brethren in Corinth the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. So there is wisdom and revelation that accompany the knowledge of Christ. It means it's not ordinary wisdom. It's not obvious wisdom. It's wisdom that comes from revelation and insight. To that end, then, he asks that the effect upon them, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. and The notion there, uh, the word enlightenment, is a reference to light coming on, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. So the implication is that This information is not readily apparent and and it's because people are approaching it from a darkened perspective, that their minds are darkened. So it suggests a present state of being that makes it such that it's not obvious at all to the normal observer these particular truths. They're hidden, as it were. So he's praying that the eyes of of their understanding be enlightened, that they may know what is the hope of his calling, God's calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. And I want to pause there for a moment but I will continue the reading. You notice that the emphasis is on Him, on Him. This morning in the breakfast meeting I was pointing out again that in the application of faith the point of vulnerability is whether or not God actually shows up. And the book of Ephesians is very much about framing the nature of God in terms of an original intent. That this is what God intended. And it succeeds because this is who God is. The evolution of theology has been largely in the wrong direction by focusing on what we need to do. The secularization of theology is by a focus on the centrality of man and what man is required to do. And in that sense it is pagan. It's not any different from the pagan gods and the way Worshipping a pagan god was thought to be, especially, the influence of the Greek gods, because there, you see, the Greek gods were never presumed to be know- to be knowable. It was not presumed that you might know them, and it certainly was not presumed that you could have a relationship with them. So it was whimsical. In the mythologies surrounding. Uh, the notion of Greek gods, they were arbitrary and capricious, whimsical. and Humans were toys to be toyed with. Unfortunately, the current evolution of theology by this narcissistic emphasis on the primacy of man inevitably recast us in a relationship to God that is fundamentally pagan, unbiblical, far from the reality. The reality is that God is near to us, so near in fact that His invitation is that we might be in Him. Now, in... in in reactivating the discussion of Zoe, eternal life, we are discussing the fact that the human being was created by the Creator to contain the life of God. So much so that your bodies are not who you are, they're the containers of who you are. So your body is more where you are than it is who you are. But in the theology of the primacy of man, the vision that that is given preeminence is your physical form. And you will hear nonsensical theologies like live your best life now, What an absolutely idiotic perspective. Far from the truth but in a crystalline fashion speaking the language of theology in the current age. That's why you can't answer certain questions like why horrible things happen to people. And you have to find a way to blame the victims and the blame is predictable. They didn't do something right. That's like the myth of Sisyphus as I I referenced this morning. You can never roll the boulder up the hill and get it set. It's your endless task. It's a kind of existentialism in, in the paradigm of the Christian faith. It's nonsensical because it only works in good times. What if your best life is extremely challenging, then you inevitably default to the notion that this is not your best life because you compare it to other people's best lives, well attended by material things, and your perspective is distorted. So once again we see the centrality of Him, the hope of His calling, His Glorious inheritance in the saints, the working of his mighty power on behalf of those who believe. All of these references inherently imply a relationship in which he is the prime actor. It is that perspective that induces Paul to come to the conclusion that when Paul is weak, he's strong. And Paul was no weakling by any measure. And in fact, not only was he not a weakling before he was converted, in his discovering the power of weakness, he actually evangelized the Roman world against the odds of unbelievable pushback and hardship from both the realms of men and the demonic, governmental and uh, civilian. That required a degree of strength that extended beyond the reserves of the natural man. And that's what he discovered. So he gloried, to use his own language, He gloried in his weakness. That doesn't mean he was weak. It meant he swapped strengths. He traded what he could do for what he came to know God intended Inasmuch as he understood and said so, that God had spoken regarding him that he was a chosen vessel to carry the name of the Lord among the Gentiles and their kings and to suffer many things for the name of the Lord. The hope of God's calling is that He has called us to be unique carriers of His presence in the earth. Now, while we're on the subject, Let me just say that your sufferings are by no means to be interpreted as that which disqualifies you from the calling. Quite the opposite. Your sufferings are the necessary preparatory framework that that allows that which is inconsistent with the nature of God being formed in you, to be removed. So your suffering is called refining or refinement. Even in the natural body, we understand that it is impossible to develop strength without the exercise that is painful endure fitness fitness for any purpose requires painful exercise even when it's done properly your body does not want no, improper exercise of course is is um, self-induced turmoil proper techniques and the like but those can be remedied But there is no avoiding stressing the body to develop strength. So your sufferings, the way you were born, meaning the circumstances into which you were born, beginning from there, perhaps even beginning in the womb, as painful as those things could be, and living the lives that, I suppose all of us have lived ought to be understood within the context of God preparing us to be able to carry His presence by having, at a minimum, the removal of those things within us that would seek to exert control over our directions and over our thoughts. Those have to be brought into submission to the rule of our spirit in order to make way for the hope of his calling. Hope there is not wish. In fact, hope is described as favorable, confident expectation. Elpis, E-L-P-I-S, is the word for hope. Favorable, confident expectation that that's what the elders from... as the ones referred to in Scripture, that's what they grasped. When God promised Abraham that of his seed he would bless the nations of the earth and identified Abraham's purpose in the earth as the progenitor of a race that would ultimately culminate in the bringing of the Lord Jesus Christ into creation, the redeemer of mankind. The promise God gave him was, I'll make of you a great nation and in your seed I will bless all the nations of the earth. Abraham lived in that promise though he never saw it. He had the confident expectation that this favor from God would eventually become the reality. And it has. It has. We are the beneficiaries of that father's faith. Whoever is of faith is of Abraham. So hope then, hope is not wish. It is positioning yourself and your whole idea of being on the reality of what God has told you. Yeah. So there is that. And then his glorious inheritance in the saints. So I, I just summarized that piece as we are moving on to uh, today's messages. His glorious. Inheritance in the saints. I had mentioned that the word Inheritance, and we talked about the word Inheritance, as the word Chloroma or an allotment from which we get the word Clergy, we talked about the spirit of adoption, the huiothesia, which is the fact that God in the mature son establishes a thesis of his own existence, of his nature and his character. That it is his telema, his will, which is his choice, his volition, his purpose, his decree, and it is his pleasure, which is to say, it is his divine satisfaction. It brings pleasure uh, as it is the expression of his purpose. and. It abounds, it abounds. It's not a small matter, it's not a restricted or conservative matter, it's hupabalo, he throws beyond. All these define God's inheritance in the saints. It means He is committed to having an inheritance because it is through mankind the redeemed mankind, and in particular through the mature son that God hopes to be demonstrated accurately in the world. Last night we spoke of God's choice of man over angels for this purpose. This morning we spoke of the imperative of love which requires the existence of the other, the object of of love. There cannot be love without an object of love. At that juncture, love is simply an hypothesis that is unproven. But once the other appears, then love is engaged between the one and the other. Now, the ultimate condition of love is that the one operates out of the other because the other is in the One. What I mean by that is this, Jesus prayed, Father, let them be one in the manner in which you and I are one. You are in me and I am in you. Let them be one in us. Now it's easy enough to understand how we might be one in the Father and the Son because we've been granted access to the Son. We talked about the the baptism by the Spirit yesterday by which we are assembled to the body of Christ, the Corpus Christi, as living members of His person. I want to back up the line now and talk about how He was in the Father and how the Father was in Him. Because in the manner in which He was the Father was in the Father and in the manner in which the Father was in Him, we are in Him and we are in the Father because we are now in Him. We are part of His living corpus. Right? So how was the Father in Him? Well, the Father was in Him through the Spirit of the Father. The Father loves the Son and shows Him what He's doing and that by the Spirit of the Father. The Spirit of the Father in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ allowed for the title to be conferred to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Everlasting Father which is to say that by the presence of the Spirit of the Father within the Son, the mature Son takes on the attitude of the Father and is indistinguishable from the Father. Though they remain distinct, they blend at the point of maturity and that's the point. When Jesus was brought to the, uh, when, when, when he came to John to be baptized in the River Jordan, the Spirit of God that had been resident in him since his mother's womb descended on him visibly to show the anointing from the Father that had come that he had come now to inhabit fully. He was at that age, 30 years of age. Now in the tradition of the Jews, when a child was about 12 years old, he was bar mitzvahed, which meant he was enrolled in the annals of his father's, of, of the father's, of the family's history. And he began an apprenticeship in whatever enterprise the father was involved with. And for a period of time, he would gradually take over the different facets of the father's business until he reached about the age of 30, at which point the father would take him around and present him as his replacement. So he'd take him to his suppliers, to his customers, to his financiers and the like, and he'd say, this is my son. And the implication was, I am moving back. I am retiring. I'm I'm not going to be the front man anymore. I'm putting my son in place. Jesus follows that arc exactly in his own maturation. At the age of 12, he's visiting uh, the temple and he engages the doctors of the law who, had, who were the custodians of the knowledge of who the Father was. So he was discussing and discovering himself in the scriptures in the interchange between himself and the doctors of the law. When his mother found him in the temple and she was exasperated, he gave us his explanation for staying behind and talking to these men. He gave us his explanation, I must be about my father's business. He had just been bar mitzvah. He was discovering what his father's business was, so that he might become an apprentice in his father's business. And from that time on, he learned obedience by the things he suffered, yet in obscurity. But now, at the age of 30, he is the huyas, he's the mature son. He had gone through the stages of sonship, uh, he had, by then, he was a technon the age of 12, typically associated with the age of being a teenager. He had become a young man, uh, Neoniscus. But at the age of 30, he was the Wios, the fully mature son, the Huothesia of God. He was about to be the demonstrated thesis of God, the picture of God incarnate. So the Spirit of God descended on him in the form of a dove and what did God say? This is my son, this is my son. From now on I'm only going to do things in the earth in sun. That's what Hebrews 1 says. And from that point on God has not done anything except in sun. We are the continuation of the doing in Son, because we are His body. We are the current iteration of the incarnation of God in the earth. It seems like you should everything in you says, slow that down for me." So I will, because this is what we're talking about when we mean. He is in us. He is in us. You see, we are the ones who are afraid of God. He is not afraid of getting involved with us. He created us so He could. Nothing we do eventually has the ability to actually affect God. You, know, you hear people talking all the time about how God has been... the name of God has been so trashed and uh, abused by bad actors. No. God remains inviolate. God is God. He's the sovereign. No opinions of men individually or collectively. Changes the reality of God. No. We don't know it. We don't. We do not know that kind of security. Because we depend upon a good press. To feel that we have value. When did it ever matter to God what the press said about Him? Years ago, there was a New York Times uh, article that in bold banner headlines declared God is dead. I think the New York Times is probably closed by now because online news has replaced print news. So the New York Times might be dead. God actually survived quite intact. We're afraid of the notion of incarnation because we think it's our idea. No, no. Incarnation is God's idea. We didn't have a thing to do with it. We didn't make it up. He made it up. When he said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And in fact, the first iteration of that principle is when God formed from the earth a container into which God imparted zoe. We've been talking these things through for several days now so I can go to these things without having to relay the foundation. The life that was in God, the life that defines God, including His characteristics. If you take a bucket of water and dip... if you dip a a bucket in the ocean uh, here in the Cape and you take it to a university and do a... um, an analysis of the chemical contents of the water. The water in the bucket would be identical to the rest of the ocean. It will possess all the characteristics of the ocean in its actual configuration. But it is not the whole ocean. Your fish the fish couldn't swim in the bucket, and you couldn't move these oil tankers around in your bucket. But as far as the properties of the ocean are concerned, they are 100% represented by the content of your bucket. When God created a container for His zoe life, He meant to put all of the attributes of God in the bucket. That, from God's viewpoint, is God coming into flesh that He made. You know what that term is called? Flesh is carnal. The word carnal is the word for flesh. Incarnate means to be held in the flesh. God by making Adam in the way God made Adam was incarnate in the flesh, in Adam. He intended it. You know how I know that? He said so. Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And he was not talking about the flesh because God cannot be contained in His entirety in the flesh. He made a container for that component of being, that endowment, that portion of being that emanated out of His own person. That's why He didn't choose angels as His representatives. That's why no angel is His son. For that fact, an angel does not contain the zoe life of God. Therefore, the characteristics of God can never be found in an angel. As part of the general creation, they might reflect the glory of God in this way, that the creation demonstrates that its creator is magnificent. But man carries the image and likeness of God. That's incarnation. And that's why God chose to create man, to put himself on display in the vessels of humankind. Because we have received a spirit out of God, a gift from God that becomes our own to possess, therefore we have a spirit. That spirit is perfectly compatible with the nature of God inasmuch as it came directly out of God. There is an absolute correlation, a one-to-one relationship between the frequency of the human spirit and the frequency of God. When God speaks, you can hear God in your spirit. You're supposed to. That's what He designed. That's what He hopes for. All this is from God. That's why the emphasis is on God, the hope of His calling, His glorious inheritance in the saints. And the final piece of those three is the working of His mighty power on behalf of those who believe. So... We are in Him in the sense that we are already in Christ and Christ is in the Father. I'll come back to that. And the Father is in us because the Father is in Christ and we are in Christ. It's inevitable. If you're in a thing and something else is in the thing, then the thing that is in something else is in you because you are in the thing that it is (laughs) in. So if you are in the water and the red tide is in the water, the red tide is all around you because you are in the water. Whatever is in the thing that you are in is in you. So He's in us by the Spirit. He's in us having given us Spirit and He's in us having activated our spirits by His Spirit. We are in Him in this sense. We are in Him in this sense. This is a reference to authority, to power and authority. We may properly claim to be the exousia of God's dunamis. To bring you back to some of the earlier discussions. Dunamis is power, exousia is executive authority and the only caveat is that we be lawfully constituted. Which is to say, we stay within the boundaries of the endowment of power that He has entrusted to us. So in that sense, we occupy a position called the plenary potentiary, which is to say, we are the potential for the demonstration of the authority and power of the One whose authority and power it is. That's the plenary. We refer to we refer to the source and origins of authority as plenary, because vis a vis that configuration of power, there is no there is no contest. If you have plenary authority, it means you have all authority. Jesus said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. So there are two types of authority. There is original authority that comes out of that original native primary uh, source. Uh, uh, aboriginal is the word I was looking for. It's ab-original, from the father, from the origin. Ab is father, original. It's, 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 when you talk about aboriginal peoples, you're talking about a people group that is distinct. You can't trace ancestry beyond that. So Charlotte 's people are uh, Aboriginal people. you know the Maori and others came from that Aboriginal people. Father, the source of fatherhood. So plenary authority is the wellspring of authority. There's no looking below or looking behind that source because there is no behind it. It's the spring itself. It cannot be disturbed all other forms of authority are delegated. So your delegation must be appropriate, meaning it is consistent with the reason He created you. So He doesn't give you authorities uh, to extend into domains He has no intention of putting you in. When you extend beyond the domains that He means for you to occupy, then you're on your own. Then you can always tell the difference between divine authority functioning and your own, because your own is always about manipulating others, controlling others, you know, intimidating by whatever means you gain their, uh you gain dominance over them. Uh, it's apparent that you are doing it. If The danger of moving beyond the set boundaries of your calling is that you have to maintain everything you initiate. You can never be at peace as long as you are the sovereign of that domain. But once you are operating within the metrons, the measure of, that's the term metron, metron, means measure of, like a metronome is the measure of the beat. A metropolis is the measure of the sphere of political rule. The root word metron means measure or standard. In fact, the, 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 the term meter, like a meter, uh, um, a distance, is derived from the same word, standards. So you never go beyond the standards of what God gives you at the current time. It does not mean that God will always limit you to those measures. But it means He will train you in certain measures. And part of the training is to determine how you behave with a little. Because you will behave with a lot in exactly the same way you behave with a little until you learn until you learn the propriety of behavior relative to the little when you when you act appropriately with what measure has been given to you then guess what he gives you more because Because He is so generous, all that He has. see, God doesn't have to have a storehouse. You don't have to have a storehouse if you're a creator. <laughs> In computer language we call it on demand. So when you're faithful with the little that He gives you, He will increase the measure of your rule and He will increase the resources that go with the measure of your rule. That's why often we find ourselves stuck in what seems to be a cycle. We're going around and around and we know that there is more because it's in us. We know, we know intuitively that we're called to more. We get frustrated because We think it's time for the more and we don't understand why God is holding it back. My suggestion is we talk to the Lord about how he judges us relative to our obedience in the present things. I have found, you know, (laughs) these things I'm telling you about, you know how I know them? These are the very demons I've had to wrestle with. Oh, Lord, are you ever going to do what you... And then I, I go back to prophetic words I got. You told me that, <laughs> that I'd go to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel. How come I'm stuck in Lodi again? <laughs> I used to quote a Credence Clearwater revival song. <laughs> <laughs> to the Lord. To the Lord. I'm stuck in, uh, you know, in, uh, yeah, what's the place I'm thinking? Port Shepstone. <laughs> 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 yeah, I should be in Cape Town. Why am I in Port Shepstone? <laughs> the answer is because you need to be in Port Shepston for a while. I'm working on things in you. I'm not about to let you loose in the condition that you're in. But sometimes it's not that entirely. Sometimes it's that where you're called to is not ready for you yet. Everything's fine with you and he'll keep the motor running but he'll keep you in neutral because if he puts you prematurely in the condition, you'll blow it up. Sometimes It doesn't have a thing to do with your readiness. You've been faithful. Sometimes that's the frustration because you've done everything you know to do. And if He showed you anything else, it's true, you would do it, you'd attend to it faithfully. So He's increasing patience in you while He's working in the others because God never moves you out into a situation that He has not prepared to receive you. I've blown up enough things to know that. One of, the, one of the advantages of actually getting old is that your priorities are clarified for you and you're focused in a way you could not possibly... I could not possibly have been when I was younger. So all in its time. But the point is that God intends to and does inhabit you. That's the meaning of incarnation and you are given His authority under which to labor. Because as much as you can be a hard worker, there are things to be done that you cannot do in your own strength. That's what Paul discovered in his weakness, that it's he worked as hard as anyone, worked harder than most, but then he claimed but it was the grace that labored grace that labored. So you are in Him by being under His authority. That's what it means. He deploys you. You are the potential, you are actually the demonstrated potential of the plenary. The plenary is the one with all authority, you are His potentate which is the potential actualized. When you come, He comes. And whatever they do to you, they've done it to Him. That's the manner in which He is in you. So God's glorious inheritance in you is the potential of being seen through you. For He comes incarnate in you. That is the plan, that's not your plan, that's His plan. That's why you are here. Every human being created by God was endowed with that potential. The potential is activated at the point where you give the life back to God. Once you give the life back to God, That is the thing that is initiated, And it's His glorious inheritance. He intends to appear gloriously, the doxa of God, intends to be seen, the majesty of God, intends to be put on display, God intends to put on display the majesty of God in you And yesterday or two days ago we talked about the word Elohim, magistrates, who act righteously, who act justly. And then finally um, he said, uh, "...and the working of His mighty power on behalf of those who believe." Now, I want to read from there because I want to move into that section of it. Um, The eyes of your understanding be enlightened that you may know that what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty strength which He worked in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality... You know, when He talks about seating Him, He's talking about power. That's the context, Power. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. This is the language of power. Principality is an area of rule. Dunamis is the ability to to accomplish. Might, arche, uh, might and dominion. Dominion is arche, the overarch of his domain, the overarch of his rule and every name, and of course the name here is title because you identify power by titles. Okay? If, you have, if you have titles but no power, then you are fraudulent. But do not deny the titles of legitimate power because they are to command Authority and respect. If I say I'm an apostle but I'm a fraud, it doesn't matter what I say. I may fool some of the people some of the time but I'm not going to fool all of the people all of the time. But if you receive a genuine apostle in the name of, a, of an apostle, there's a reward in it for you you'll get what is in the reward. You'll get what is in that delegation of power. So as you've sat and heard, what have you gotten? You've gotten the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. You're being being shown order and governance, a way of life that a genuine ambassador of, of a kingdom has the authority to impart. So it's time we clear up a lot of this nonsense. There have been people who routinely come and roll out the apostolic card or roll out the prophetic. I knew this one guy who would always introduce himself as I'm so-and-so, a prophet of God. Okay. But if you know the man, you know why he would do that. He had no idea who he was. So that was like a calling card. I'm so and so, I'm president of a made up name. (laughs) I've seen some of the most elaborate names on business cards. When I investigated, it was a post office draw. They could make up names but our reaction ought not be because we see the fraudulent that there is no real thing because if you say so then when true angels come you will entertain them unawares and it will not be beneficial to you. You know what God expects of you? He expects you to be able to discern accurately. No discernment is required if you just say, you know, it's all fraudulent and you do not require the people to make a discernment if you say, it doesn't matter what you call me. I am not a person, because I have a title. I do not have an identity because I have a title. I have an identity because I am a son of God. So so are you. Hmm? Whatever configuration of power you carry, however, ought to be received as it is, because if you don't receive it, if it's not received, the Lord as He appears incarnate is not received. You will not see Me again until you say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. So the, 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 the required condition, you see, is one of discernment. Children are unable to discern but adults are required to discern. And certainly mature saints, its for mature saints is inexcusable for you not to discern. And we serve you poorly if we do not require you to discern. Hmm? Grow up. It's about growing up, taking on greater weight. Of course, there will be counterfeits. We have an enemy. But it's your responsibility to discern. Hmm? So there is an, and what's at stake is whether or not you benefit from legitimate carriers of grace. Because as long as you say, you know, I'm not sure about this apostle stuff. And there is a a wave of the things of God moving through the earth in that capacity. Then you will not join what God is doing because of apathy. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. I'll wait till it's proven. I'll wait till X, Y, Z and 40 years later you're trying to catch up to something that you could have been leading. When you're running after it 40 years later, you're not leading it. You're lucky if there's a room made for you at the back of the bus. Yet you see guys coming in, out of breath 40 years later saying, I'm the driver. <laughs> no, you overslept. You missed the bus. The working of His mighty power toward us who believe. And then he demonstrates what it means for the working of His mighty power. That He, he demonstrates that by an example that He worked when He raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one which is to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave him to be head over all things for the church, which is his body. That would be you. Presumably, that would be you. He is the custodian of all this power and authority far above, beyond, etc., for the church. See, he doesn't need this power in heaven. This power needs to be activated in the earth. But the source of the power has to be seated in the higher realm in order to be able to govern in the lower realm. or the church which is his body and you are in him. He is in you, you are in him. The fullness of him which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The best way I can illustrate this this portion is in a revelation that I was shown uh, fairly recently. In the book of Revelation it speaks of a river of life that flows from the throne of God. And on both sides of the river are twelve trees which bring forth their fruit for the healing of the nations. Now, that represents the completed picture. When that throne migrates to the earth in the day that it is appointed, which is at the end of the age. But all things that are of internal nature, because the throne you see, the throne is a symbol of something. The throne is not in itself anything. It's a symbol of something. The throne by itself is just a cathedra, a seat. But the seat is the symbol of something. Okay? The seat is the symbol of authority. A throne, the reason it's not a bench. But a throne, not a chair or a banquette, but a throne is because we understand the symbolic implication of a throne. It means where the one who has authority sits to adjudicate matters of state. The throne is not in the dining room of Queen Elizabeth of England where she has somebody pull up the throne to the end of the table. It's it's in the state room where she receives heads of state to transact business between nations. Her seat then is... and when she's not sitting on it, it's just a chair. And from what I hear, what I've seen, not a particularly comfortable chair at that. In the empty room, empty of the presence of the monarch, it's a piece of furniture. And if there's a fire in the palace, it'll burn down. It'll burn up the chair. Just as readily, the fire doesn't say, Oh, that's the throne. I, uh, I, can't, I can't interfere with that. My point is it's a symbol, simply a symbol of a thing. What gives the symbol potency is when it receives the one who actually has authority. Then it's the throne. When the Lord Jesus Christ was on the earth, the authority of heaven migrated to the earth with him. reminded his disciples that he could command the heavens. Even in the state of his vulnerability, he could command the forces of heaven. They were at his disposal because he was still the Lord. Do Do you not understand that I could command legions of angels to defend me? Those are not creatures of the earth. They're creatures of the heavens. In fact, they're creatures that wait around the throne for commands from the throne. He didn't have to go back to heaven to command the thro- to command anything. He could command from the earth because he had the authority of heaven in the earth. Okay? It's the appointed ones who have authority. and your authority is where you are, the sphere that God gives you. So in that sense, the heavenlies is not a reference to a place but a state of being. To be seated in heavenly realms, the word realms is domains. We know these things but we have been conditioned to think about them in a certain fashion. When you are seated in your position in Christ, you are a functionary within the authority of the living God Himself, wherever you are. That's what Jesus meant when He said, we are seated in heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. That's the operative term. If you are in Christ Jesus, you're seated in divine authority, which is described as, what did he say? Far above. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. I'll come back to that. In the heavenly places, far above all. Principality and power and might and dominion. Every other configuration of power, you're seated above that, right? What I'm saying to you, however, is that's not about being in a location, that is about the relationship to God that you're engaged in. Because the notion of the right hand it's not like there's a seat God sits in it and here on his right hand is Jesus. Right hand right hand is the traditional picture of the heir. The right hand is the position occupied by the one who has been positioned as the heir you know that you've been positioned as the heir because he seats you at the right hand what did we talk about about adoption yesterday julius caesar positioned octavian to succeed him in the rule of rome rather than his child his son by cleopatra of egypt because the romans would not accept an egyptian as the of the, of the most powerful empire on the face of the earth, but they would accept one from the family of Julius. So he adopted the word to position as the heir. He adopted Octavian, who became the successor emperor to Julius. The spirit of adoption is about the right hand. It's the picture of how you are positioned. The seat of divine authority is your place in Christ who is at the right hand as the one who has to be listened to. God said, hear him. God said, I judge all matters by son or in son. Where He is, there you may be also. Why? Because you are in Him. You're not next to Him. You're not on His right hand. You're in Him who is at the right hand. Position of authority. The position of authority. So wherever you are, is the right hand. So you are on the throne where you are seated now. In your circumstances, whether you are lying in your bed at night, sitting on your couch in your room, at your desk, at the restaurant, wherever you may be you are at the, you're seated the word seated implies settledness you're not tossed to and fro you're not bouncing around it doesn't come and go you're seated you have been the word seated is like when dignitaries come in to to a place of meeting at a conference table, they are position plates, uh, name plates, indicating, this, sir, is your seat. And the indication is, at the table, this is your position. This is what you represent at the table. That's what it means to be seated. These are terms of art, they're not domestic terms. we viewed them as domestic terms and robbed them of the entirety of their potency. To be seated means you're not going to be moved. You shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that we shall not be, we shall not be moved. That's what it means to be seated. It's the term vested, vested. You've, you have come well, so you are welcomed. You are not a bounder, you're not a pretender, you're not a transgressor, you're not a looter, you're not a thief, you haven't broken in. You've come properly. That's why you should endure suffering like a good soldier. Because it's the pathway to the refinement that allows you to be seated in your place. But have no, make no mistake, it is about the position of authority, the right hand. Now, when you are properly seated, when you're properly seated, vested, in fact, by the way, the word vested had a history to it. The word investment and investiture had to do with being robed. Robed. Because offices. Carried certain robes, robes and chains, gold chains. You ever see the Lord Mayor of London robed and invested? Yeah, when the Queen was made the Queen of England, she was invested with the office of the Queen. People don't just... In democracies, we don't understand that people just walk in and walk out; they come and they go as they will, you know, because we are rotating tables. But investments and investitures had to do with people permanently seated for their lives. But in the revolving, uh, in the revolving tables of democracy, we've lost the sense of majesty. There's no time for the culture of the majestic to develop in a democracy. That's why we don't see majesties. We see people who are filling their sacks in the time they're in office, but not majesties. You see judges who take bribes because there's no culture of majesty. I am talking to you about us coming back to a royal priesthood, a holy nation, functionally. Functionally, you see, we were not a people, but now we have become the people of God, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation because, because we are a people whom God possesses as His glorious inheritance. <clears throat> Majesties. You have to painfully, <laughs> deliberately, intentionally, straw by straw, line by line, Reconstruct that which was lost. His glorious inheritance means that you are welcome, you have come properly to your place. You are not going to run in and run out, you are vested with an investiture that shows the riches of your standing and where you sit is the throne of God. And when you speak, a river of truth comes out of your belly and waters the root systems of people who were lost but now are found and they'll grow up on the banks of your river because they are oaks of righteousness. They are trees that bear fruit, that heal their neighborhoods, that heal the Cape Flats, where you insert into that culture of fatherlessness the potential of fathers who come from the house of God and gang members find stability because a righteous Father has taken them into his household. And your word will bring life. Your decrees will bring order. And the dry land and the desert will bloom again because of the river of life that is flowing from the throne of God on which sits the majesties of God to execute judgment in the earth.